0: E A L. Responsible eating, responsible eating, responsible eating and living.
1: Hello, everybody. I'm Karen Hartglass, and you're listening to Real Worldwide Radio. I am here in my favorite studio of all, which is my terrace outside of my apartment in Forest Hills, New York. I like it out here, and um, I'm figuring I probably won't have much more opportunity to record outside for a while, as it's fall now, October 14th, and it's getting chilly, but I really like doing this show, in particular, outdoors, because... For one, I like. I want it to be like a conversation where we're sitting here having tea. I have mine. I have my organic green tea. I'm going to take a sip, and uh, I just feel it gives it a a better atmosphere when you hear life around you. I, I appreciate sound studios, but they really do absorb all natural sound. You can hear the dog barking. And uh, there have been other times that I really haven't been able to record outside because a lot of times, since we live across the street from a very nice little city park, there are often children during the day, teenagers during the evening, sometimes, unfortunately, way late into the evening, and they keep many of us awake. It's amazing how the sound can travel from the ground up to the third floor, the eighth floor, and so on. Um, and I'm not quite sure why some of these young people are out here at midnight or three in the morning on a school night, but that's a whole nother conversation and a whole nother show. Sometimes it's just hard to record out here because little children are screaming with delight over one thing or another, or uh, there's some sort of bullying going on or whatever, but it's a lot of life A lot of life out here. But right now, it's really quite pleasant. It's cool. And that's why it's kind of quiet. Because most people aren't going to be out at this hour during this weather. So I get to enjoy it. And you get to hear the sounds of life, the sounds of people, the sounds of community. I like that. Well, guess what? We're going to talk about food today because that seems to be all I ever talk about for the most part. Food and art. I like to talk about art, music. But this show is mostly about food. And uh, it's a good time to talk about food. The New York Times, Weekend Magazine, they came out with their food magazine. I think it comes out once a year. The cover is good enough to lick. (laughs) Oh, it's the food and drink issue, but they used a very large font for food and a tiny font for drink because they were emphasizing food this year because food seems to be on the radar in politics and More and more people are talking about food, not just me, because more people are concerned about the quality of food and what's going on with our food system. There's a lot of wonderful articles in this issue. If you can uh, pick it up or catch some of the articles online, I, I think it's worth it. Michael Pollan wrote a big article in this issue, and he brought up some very important points. He's saying that it's not clear yet whether we actually have a movement, a food movement, an alternative food movement. There clearly are signs that more people are interested in healthy food because we have more farmers markets and community-supported agriculture, CSA, and the organic local food market is growing tremendously, but it hasn't necessarily hit the government yet. And we're all kind of waiting for the election. And it's not about the presidents, no. It's about that ballot initiative in California, Proposition 37. Now, apparently Monsanto and DuPont have put in over $12 million to date, along with some other food industrial companies like Coca-Cola and Pepsi, they have all contributed to getting people to vote no on the Proposition 37, which would require labeling of genetically modified food. It seems that most people want labeling, and these companies don't want it because they think they'll lose business. Now, why would they think that if genetically modified food wasn't a problem. Well, at the very least, the image of genetically modified food that isn't necessarily positive, And I guess that's what they're concerned about. But I really believe that if this passes, we will see tremendous change. And I believe it will be good change. We need to know what's in our food. At least those that are interested should be able to know without having to go the extra mile, put on our reading glasses to read the fine print. And the only real way we know right now, fortunately, at least we have one method, is if our food is certified organic. We know that there's no genetically modified organisms in it, and that to some extent is true because there still is, unfortunately, cross-pollination. It's really impossible to keep the pollen from one kind of plant away from the pollen of another kind of plant. Maybe nature intended that. I don't know that nature intended that we would create our own modifications that were done at the gene level, but... Some organic food does have a small percentage of contamination, unfortunately. But, you know, we do the best we can. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what Californians choose. Apparently, according to the polls, the majority still is in favor of this proposition in spite of all the money that's been put in to convince the public otherwise. And the reason why it's so important is because so much of our food comes from California. So if they are required to label in California companies that manufacture food all over the country and in California will want to make it easier on themselves and just decide we're going to make the same product for everyone. And so it would kind of have a snowball effect, a good snowball effect. Another thing that Michael Pollan mentioned in his article in this Food and Drink magazine New York Times is that although what's going on right now is not necessarily a movement because we haven't seen much activity at the government level we've just seen pockets of activity. Certainly there's a lot of activity in my world because I look for it, but maybe in many other parts of the country people aren't aware as much of the importance of eating healthy food, organic, local, not genetically modified, not eating highly processed food, etc. So it's not on a priority list for most government officials to push through on their agenda while they're working with their either local government or federal government. But this is going to change. I really think that this is a movement, and we will see more and more people involved. But the thing that he did bring up, which I thought was really more important than anything, More people are going to farmers markets and what you find is there's a community developing where people have more conversations, more conversations with each other than you see in like a supermarket. A supermarket has a very sterile environment. Now, I have had a number of conversations in supermarkets just because I'll chat up with anyone and uh, somehow uh, people can't seem to help themselves when they see my cart is a mountain of dark leafy green vegetables and nothing else. They have to ask me questions and I'm really happy to start up a conversation about food and dark leafy green vegetables, my favorite food. But for the most part, um, the the supermarket is a place where people run in a lot of times to hurry up and get the food that they need and, and leave. And it's not a a warm nurturing environment for conversation whereas farmers farmers markets are and there's a lot more going on there and plus you get to talk to real farmers there's no middleman here other than the organization that was involved in creating the space and renting it to the farmers to sell their stuff during a farmers market. And, uh, that's why farmers markets are so important. We need to know who's making our food. We need to know, we need to be able to talk to them, see their passion or lack of passion and see their pride and thank them because we really can't live without food and we should not be so disconnected from where it comes from. And, uh, I'm hoping that this, whatever it is, does become more of a movement and more mainstream. We need to step back a little bit. I think there's a balance somewhere between technology, manufacturing, and doing things in an old fashioned, natural way. There's a balance here somewhere. I think we can grow food with great yields using a lot of great technology without poisoning the earth. There were some articles too in this magazine about that, about growing in the Central Valley of California where so much of our food, so much of our produce comes from and unfortunately many of the farmers there are not taking care of the earth. They're basically growing as much as they can to to make as much as they can in the short term, not thinking about the health and sustainability of the soil. And this is sad, but there are a few people that are working towards making at least their plot more sustainable and showing the rest of us that it can be done. The thing is that the culture needs to change, the system needs to change, and I believe that we're not going to see these giant agribusinesses making a lot of our food. I think what we've benefited from giant agribusiness is the money that was invested in making a lot of machinery and technology to help speed things along to help pick the harvest and to help turn the soil and and, and, and do a lot of things automatically and fast, but at the same time we can use more natural ways to nourish and sustain the soil, but we need to do it on a smaller scale. So maybe not individual farmers making their own food, but small farmers that have a a small plot, maybe 100 acres, and, and grow enough food for a small community. And we need more people doing that that would supply more jobs. And the food would be fresher and local, and people would get to know their neighbors more. In that way, we need to go backwards a little bit. But there needs to be incentive in order for farmers to access the technology that's available in order to make their work more efficient. I like to put it out there because that's how change happens. We need to start thinking about these things. And I I really believe that there's a greater consciousness maybe that we all tap into somehow outside of ourselves now this may sound like a little mystical tra la la woo woo wa wa but there is some scientific evidence where some serious scientists are looking into the metaphysics and and i've read some articles about an exterior consciousness that we all share interesting who knows but that's why i think it's important to talk about the possibilities, talk about better ways, talk about ideas and put them out there so that they can that they can like seeds grow. The unfortunate thing about drinking hot tea outdoors is that it gets cold faster and i'm now drinking a mildly warm tea. <laughs> Mm. But it's still quite good. (laughs) There was another article in this food and drink magazine. It was called Desperately Seeking Supper. And the first article, it was a series of small articles about different people who looked for uh, some sort of fantastic flavor or dish in different areas of the world. We like to read articles like this. We can travel virtually and read about different foods and flavors and sites. It's fun. The first article was called In Search of the Tonguegasm. There was another article regarding Greenland. And I pause a moment as the train passes. Chugga, 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 (laughs) chugga. There was an article regarding Greenland. And the first sentence opened saying, You don't want to be squeamish, and you especially don't want to be vegan if you visit Greenland. (laughs) Well, there are a lot of things in that line. I like to read between the lines. And the first thing is, The word vegan has really made it to the forefront. People are talking about it, whereas a long time ago people weren't. And like I just said about putting things out there into the consciousness, eating animals and not eating animals, the choice is definitely out in human consciousness today about whether it's right or not right. We're talking about it, and that's a very big step. And I find especially in the New York Times, because that's the paper I read. I'm not sure about other magazines and newspapers. I do try and uh, catch some of the articles online from other papers. But they're constantly mentioning vegan food, either in their food issues or in recipes or articles on food. We are being recognized as a force, (laughs) We are being recognized because there are more of us, and we are very vocal. And I think um, we, we spend a good amount of our disposable income on quality food. So we are to be reckoned with, we are to be written about, and we are to be listened to and to be heard. So what did this mean? You don't want to be squeamish and you especially don't want to be vegan if you visit Greenland. Well, Greenland is one of these places. I have not been there. I can't say I have a desire to go, but who knows? It's cold and not a lot grows there. And the people tend to eat animals and not much else. I did Google around a little bit and there was one blog about an a vegan artist who recently went to Greenland. This post that I'm reading is from August 2012, A Vegan in Greenland. And um, he talks about being open to the possibility of eating fish if he needed it. But so far, he's been sticking to the vegan diet. He did bring some food along with him, like mung beans to sprout and uh, But other than that, he's been taking advantage of what is available in the supermarkets. Mushrooms, that's pretty good. And other food that's been shipped in from other places. And uh, he seems to be doing okay. <laughs> they do have things like dandelions. Um, I read about a number of vegetable products that do grow there. My question is, what are the animals eating? Because there are many animals that need to live on plants. But uh, you can be a vegan and live and survive in Greenland if you want to. (laughs) Uh, The interesting thing, I went to... Wikipedia to see what the life expectancy was in Greenland. Would you like to know what that is? It was interesting. Oh, so I wrote it down, and then where did it go? Okay, life expectancy. This is from the CIA World Factbook 2011 Estimates. Greenland listed as number 144 with an average life expectancy of 70.07 men unfortunately at 67.44 and women at 72.05 now that compares with the united states which is number 51 hello the greatest country in the world many people think and our life expectancy is number 51 average age is 78.37 Men are at 75.92, and women are at 80.93. Okay, so we're doing better than Greenland. But I think we could do a little better. Interestingly, (laughs) number one on the list is Monaco, with an average life expectancy of 89.73. The men are at 85.77, and the women are at 93.69. I haven't looked into this. And I don't know if I have to look very far. I did spend a few weeks in Monaco in the late 90s. I was doing an opera competition, and we got to stay at the Lion Hotel, which is right next to the casino, which is also the opera house. And there were six of us vying for a $30,000 prize. I did not win, but it was really a wonderful experience to be there. And the one thing I'm thinking of is the reason why they do so well over there is because they have a lot of money. You can't be poor and live in Monaco. It's really quite lovely there. I found that I couldn't stay for too long. It was just too elegant, too lovely. (laughs) Is that interesting? Um... But usually when people have a lot of money, there tends to be that wealthy diet where they indulge in fatty foods and rich foods and don't do so well. You know, we see all those kings and queens that end up not living too long in history because they've been eating very rich diets. Well, apparently that's not happening in Monaco, and I think it's really worth looking into. Now, clearly, maybe because they're all so affluent, they don't have... As much stress as where they're going to be paying the bills, or you know, maybe they're just really happy living right near the water, uh, that beautifully colored aqua, Az- the Kotazur, they call it, and the water is just so incredibly beautiful, and there are hills and mountains. The scenery is beautiful, the people are beautiful, everything is beautiful, and they live longer something definitely worth looking into. (laughs) Okay, so since it's been getting colder, I've been staying in a little more. And one of the things, of course, that I like to do is make food. I'm going to talk a little more in detail on this episode about Making food, I usually save it to the end and talk about a number of real recipes that we're highlighting on our website, responsibleeatingandliving.com. But uh, I'm going to talk a little bit more about a variety of different things. Now I know that most people today are very overwhelmed and very busy with their families and their jobs and their carpooling and all kinds of activities, and the idea of being in the kitchen and making food is really overwhelming and problematic. And um, I. Really try and encourage people to find a time, find a way to organize in their lives a moment where they can be in the kitchen. It's great to do it with kids and make food. You'll save money. The quality of your food will be better. You'll learn things. You'll appreciate your food more. And I think it's better than watching television. (laughs) I don't watch television very much. I'm in the kitchen making food. So some of the things that we have grown to expect tremendous convenience with picking up off of the store shelves are a variety of different staples, like bread, yogurt, cheese. And here at Responsible Eating and Living Real Worldwide Headquarters, we've been making all of these things at home. Let's start with yogurt. Yogurt and mozzarella cheese, because they're linked, okay? So recently, I interviewed Miyoko Shinner on my uh-huh. It's All About Food show on the Progressive Radio Network, which you can hear Tuesdays live from 4 to 5, or visit responsible eating and living.com Go to the radio tab and click on the It's All About Food archive, and you can listen to this program with Miyoko Shinner. She just wrote a book called artisan vegan cheese. Now Miyoko came onto the vegan scene long before many and probably too early to make a big splash because not many people were talking about it and we didn't really have the internet. No, we didn't have the internet. But she um, created a restaurant in San Francisco, Japantown called Now and Zen. I think it was in the late 80s. I remember going there, it was lovely, and I was so excited when I found it. And then she attempted to manufacture some food, including a now and then cookie. It was a very simple cookie, but I really loved getting it because it was offered on United Airlines when they offered vegan meals. And back then, that was a very welcome treat. And then the restaurant closed, and uh, you didn't hear much from Yoka. She was raising her children. And now she's back in full force and wrote this cookbook, Artisan Vegan Cheese. Now she tapped into a lot of work that's been done by raw foodists and other vegans making cheese. You can find different recipes online. But hers takes a lot of this information and really fine-tunes it, and the instructions are really excellent. So basically, when you make cheese, even from animal milk, you have to add a culture, something that... Grows the bacteria can grow, and the flavor will change as the bacteria feed on what's in the liquid. And they it creates a tang, and that's the flavor of the cheese. This tang, and uh, many of the vegan cheeses that people have been making that are available in the store or the recipes that have been available don't have this tang because it doesn't have probiotics in it or a culture and the tang usually comes from something acidic like lemon juice and uh, even the recipes that we've offered at Responsible Eating and Living really we, we call them now nut jellos they're basically um, a blend of nuts or seeds in a liquid seasoned with different spices onion powder garlic powder maybe a little miso and, uh, and then you add an agar-agar, which is a seaweed gelatin, and it gels it so you can get an actual hard cheese. And, uh, you know, it's worked out really nicely. I find these things are really tasty, but they're not really cheese. So um, we dived into Miyoko's book and have made a number of products, and I wanted to talk about some of them because they're really exciting. So the first step, There are different ways that you can make the culture, and she uses either rejuvelac or yogurt. With the rejuvelac, this is something that raw foodists and people in the alternative health movement have been using a lot, and Wigmore promotes rejuvelac. It's... um, basically water that has a probiotic culture in it, and you get it from soaking grains. You could use wheat berries or rice or other grains. You soak them, rinse them, fill a jar with these soaked grains and water, let it sit in a dark space for a day, rinse it again, and then pour in fresh water. And then a, a day later, you can wait a day or two or three you have rejuvelac, which is a tangy water and then you can refrigerate this and it lasts a couple of weeks. And you can drink it and you're getting really good probiotics that help your digestive system. But also this rejuvelac is good for making cheese. So um, I can't help myself, but I try to follow recipes and then I do my own thing. But We made a first batch with um, cashews using rejuvelac and it gets a really interesting flavor. The thing is you can make a soft cheese with nuts and some spices and this rejuvelac and you get a nice um, creamy soft spreadable cheese and the more you leave it out the tangier it gets. Uh, you can also get hard cheeses and what Miyoko Shinner does is she uses different gums like carrageenan, xanthan gum. We ordered carrageenan. It's kind of expensive and there are some conversations online about whether carrageenan is a healthy product or not. I think uh, if you don't use too much of it, it, it should be fine. You find carrageenan in a lot of non-dairy milks and ice creams and in a lot of food products. So we made one hard cheese, and uh as we were stirring it up, as the recipe requires with the carrageenan, uh,
0: boy was it stinky,
1: <laughs> and we created this really flavorful, stinky cheese. <laughs> and uh, for someone who hasn't eaten cheese for 25 years and then had this kind of flavor on my tongue, it was really fun. Now, I'm not saying that I want to eat this all the time. I know a lot of people eat way too much cheese, and they're getting too much saturated fat. But I think it's nice to have a small amount to top different dishes or, like I say, like some desserts as a treat for a special occasion. This is something that's really nice to have. And nuts and seeds are healthy. So this is a healthier version of cheese And you're getting this really fun, tongue if I can quote the New York Times, uh, flavor. Now here's what was really, really exciting. So there are some other cheeses in the book made from yogurt. And I have made yogurt before from soy milk, sometimes successful and sometimes utter failure and uh, I figured out thanks to the recipe in this book how to do it successfully. Now the first thing, I might have mentioned this before, but I have this really lovely oven at home. And it's a convection oven. And I didn't realize until 10 years after I had it that it had a dehydrator option on it. <laughs> and I had I had even bought an Excalibur dehydrator some years ago and then sold it again when I wasn't using it as much without knowing that I had this great dehydrator option in my oven. Doing And now I've been using it, and it's great for making yogurt because I can set the oven at 100, 110 degrees, which is the ideal temperature for making yogurt. But the trick is to take unsweetened soy milk, just soy milk and water, and Trader Joe's has it, West Soy has it, and mix it with some cashews that have been soaking for a few hours in water, and you blend this together. The cashews will make the milk thicker, richer, creamier, so that your yogurt is thick instead of thin and watery. And it also makes it taste really, really good. Uh, And then you have an option of taking some yogurt, and it can be store-bought. I buy the plain unsweetened store-bought version. And use three tablespoons of it in in this warm soy milk-cashew mixture. You mix that in, not greater than 110 degrees, and then let it set in the oven for four to eight hours. I let mine go for eight hours, and afterwards you have this wonderful, creamy, smooth yogurt, and it's not sweet. And the great thing about this is you can use it in all kinds of recipes. You can use it for savory, for raita with cucumber, or you can sweeten it yourself and add fresh fruit and berries. The trick is, though, you always have to leave three tablespoons so that you can have that as a starter for more yogurt. And and the great thing is it lasts a long time. Once the culture is in the yogurt, it really doesn't go bad. So you don't have to make new yogurt right away. You just have to keep a little starter in the refrigerator so it's ready when you're ready to make more. That's step one.
0: Oh, my God, is this complicated?
1: (laughs) So step two is to make the cheese. So once you have the yogurt, this is your base, and it's really genius. If you read about how mozzarella is made, this is really pretty similar. So uh, Miyoko uses this yogurt and then adds a few flavorings, some oil, Now, again, I don't like to use oil normally in my food, but this is a treat, underline treat, special occasion treat, (laughs) and it helps make this vegan mozzarella meltable. You can make it without the oil, but this makes it real. And, uh, And then it has a little carrageenan in it. And what's really fun is you have an ice water bath of brine, salted water, and once you've made this thick mixture and it's become all stirred in with the carrageenan so that it's shiny and glossy. You make small balls and plop it in the brine and it will form into these balls of mozzarella just like traditional Italian mozzarella. It's really fun and the taste is crazy. It is, it's mozzarella. It's light, simple mozzarella. Great for making pizza which we are probably going to do today in celebration. Anyway, that may seem like a lot of trouble, but my take on it is that there are some foods that we should be eating all the time, simple fruits and vegetables, things that don't take a lot of preparation and things that are freshly harvested and not manufactured and not processed or at least minimally processed, fruits and vegetables, beans, whole grains, And this should be our staple, our foundation of food that we eat all the time. Add lots of herbs and spices. You can eat some of them raw, eat some of them steamed, cook them up in different ways, and you have a huge variety of wonderful food. And then for the food that may not be the most nutritious, but things that are comforting, personally, I think these are the foods we should make ourselves. Make it special. This way, it'll be, it'll be the most, um, nutritious possible rather than buying it from the store. And plus, it just, um, I think it creates a culture, a tradition. You can do it with your family and makes it that much more appreciated than grabbing a dry loaf of bread from the store or even going to a bakery and getting it, making your own bread, making your own yogurt, making your own cheese. I put it out there. I really encourage you to do it because uh, it's a treat. It's special. Rather than grabbing string cheese from the supermarket and just, you know, eating it fast on the fly, it's not good for you that brings me to making bread. And uh, I really try to do things as economically as possible. I do like to buy quality food and organic food. And I will avoid buying certain organic foods when they're really, really expensive. I uh, work at buying them when they're relatively reasonable. And I do a lot of online shopping. I talked about this a few months ago, the things that I've chosen to buy online. I'm not really sure if this is the most environmentally friendly way to do it, um, but I do try and buy from companies that I believe in their practices and offer quality food. So I buy a lot of my uh, grains, flours in bulk so that I get a better price. And, you know, I don't have a big space here, but I managed to find room for everything. So the thing I was looking for this week was yeast because I've been making a lot of gluten-free bread these days. I don't want to go out and buy it. <laughs> I want to make it. And uh, I don't want to run out of yeast. And uh, if you've ever made bread, when you buy yeast in the store... Typically, we buy yeast from these little, dry, active yeast packages. And you know what? They're expensive. Three packets. Each packet is a quarter ounce. And the three of them together, it's usually like $3 or more. And I thought maybe I could do better online or maybe I could buy some in bulk. And I've seen jars of yeast before. So in doing this, I learned a few things. There are different kinds of yeast. There's the moist, cakey kind that we really don't see much of anymore, which are very fresh and don't last very long, and you need to keep them refrigerated. Then there's the dry active yeast that lasts a lot longer because this yeast culture is alive. And what happens is they do some processing to it to make it dormant so that when you add a little warmth to it, warm water and sugar to feed it, it acts up again and starts to eat and it starts to let out alcohol and carbon dioxide. And that's how you get the flavor from the yeasted foods and the rising from the yeasted foods. But when I was looking at the quantities of yeast... I discovered that I couldn't find yeast without this additive additive, sorbitin monosterate. It's an emulsifier, and of course it's FDA approved, and uh, it seems like there's nothing really harmful about it, although some people are allergic to it. But I just didn't want this extra additive, and I couldn't find bulk yeast in my supermarket without it and it's hard to find it online. I found one brand that I'm not familiar with, so I haven't gone for it yet, and if you know about it, please let me know. It's called Meijer. It's from Mexico, M-E-I-J-E-R. But again, you know, I kind of wanted to buy my yeast from an American supplier and keep it local. And then I thought, wait a minute, why buy yeast? Why not make my own starter? And I did this a while ago when I was living in France and really into the romantic culture of food making there and I would make my own bread very often and I had my own starter. And starter is really what yeast is all about, it's just not as convenient as yeast in the package. But I am going to get started with starter very soon. Uh, when I did it in France, I used wheat flour and it's really very simple. You make a little dough with water and you can use wheat, but there are gluten free versions as well. Some people have used potato and you make a little dough and you c- cover it and you leave it in a dark place for a day and it starts to ferment. And what's fascinating is there are yeast spores in the air. And every area has their own yeast spores. So your yeast starter will have its own regional flavor to it. Isn't that exciting? Why not? That's why San Francisco sourdough bread, they've marketed that starter, that flavor, that sourdough because San Francisco has its own unique yeast spores flying around. Now for people that are into the gluten-free diet there are ways to make starter without gluten and that's what I'm going to start doing next. The thing is you have to feed your starter and this can be extra inconvenient so you can make your starter let it grow for a day or two and then you feed it a little more and then you let it grow and then you can use it and save a cup or so in the refrigerator but it only will last three to five days then you have to take it out and you have to feed it again it gets hungry (laughs) and then set it out and let it grow you don't have to use it but you have to keep feeding it every few days And that's where the extra inconvenience comes in. But I'm going to start getting into it. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe I can make my yeasted products once a week or at least feed my starter once a week and keep that going. And then I've solved my yeast problem. (laughs) No pun intended. I know a lot of people have yeast problems, and it's not the same. It's from eating too much sugar and, uh They have all kinds of digestive problems and urinating problems with candida, a yeast problem. This is a different kind of yeast problem, but also food-related. All right, let's uh, wind up with some real recipes that we've been making this week. Uh, One of the things that we did was an Asian fusion dinner. I really like to keep with ethnic themes sometimes. why not? It just helps to prepare a meal and the flavors really go together harmoniously. So we started with simple salad with a carrot, apple, ginger dressing. It's a dressing that I love and I don't make often enough. I'm not quite sure why, but it just is. So when I think about it, I do it but i made the ginger dressing a little different than i normally do most carrot ginger dressing has carrots and ginger obviously maybe a little sesame oil and rice wine vinegar and some extra seasonings i didn't want to use oil and i was and i didn't want to sweeten it with sugar so carrots which are naturally sweet and apple juice we we used apple juice as the liquid And I was able to blend up grated carrots and ginger with some apple juice and make a lovely sweet and tangy, really great tongue-gasmic dressing for simple green lettuce. That was the salad. Oh, and I garnished it with some black sesame seeds. That just makes the colors really pop. So instead of sesame oil, I will use sesame seeds. I like that better. You get the fiber. You get all kinds of other nutrients that you don't get in the oil. And plus, the oil can be rancid if it's old and hasn't been refrigerated. And then miso soup. I love miso soup, especially as the weather gets colder. It's very comforting and so easy to make. Okay, the downside to miso is that it is very salty, and I'm not someone who eats much salt. But... Occasionally, I take the benefits of the fermentation that's in miso with the cost of the salt. The fact that I don't really get salt from anything else, I figure, isn't going to hurt me. And you can make a simple miso soup or complicated miso soup. Um, The recipe that's included in this Asian fusion dinner on our website is just for basic miso where you're just taking the miso paste simple white mellow miso but there are many varieties of miso out there and the great thing is you can buy them all and keep them in the refrigerator and they last forever so i recommend trying them because they all have wonderful different flavors some are made from corbanzo beans and some are made from barley there's a wide range but it's just fermented grains and soybeans into a paste that looks like a translucent type of peanut butter and you can mix it with a little water And you boil your water and make your soup. You can add whatever you want to it, vegetables, scallions, little bits of tofu. And then you take it off the heat and you swirl in the miso paste that's been creamed with a little water. You don't want to cook miso because it has some wonderful digestive enzymes in it that will be destroyed with high heat. And that's the miso soup. It's really, really lovely. And unfortunately, when you go to a Japanese restaurant, the secret ingredient to be aware of in miso soup are bonito flakes. Bonito flakes. Many times they make miso from a a prepared dried powder of miso that's been mixed with dried bonito flakes. Or they add in bonito fish to the soup broth. And uh, when you're vegan and you don't want that, It's hard to avoid. Now, there are some Japanese restaurants that say they don't use it, and you just have to trust. I like making miso at home, and then I know what's in it. And then the other dish that we made in this lovely Asian fusion dinner was tofu and eggplant in plum sauce. Now, I've been going a little crazy over plum sauce, so we have a recipe on the ResponsibleEatingAndLiving.com website for making prune butter. And uh it was this crazy revelation that I had not too long ago where I made prune butter from prunes and water. Imagine. I was frustrated looking for prune butter in my supermarket. I wanted it organic. I wanted it with simple ingredients. And I didn't want it to be outrageously expensive. And it was really hard to find when I was making some holiday cookies that required prune butter. And in the end, I solved this problem. I order online A shipment every six months of prunes that are organic they're reasonably priced and I make my own prune butter which is just boiling water with prunes and pureeing them and putting them in a jar it's fabulous and I've been using this prune butter for so many different things so I made a plum sauce that I used with tofu and eggplant really a great dish and what's great about it is it looks like one of these oily, gooey dishes you get in a Chinese restaurant, but it has no oil and it has no salt unless you decide to add a little back into it. The brown color is not from soy sauce. It's from the prune butter. It's a plum sauce. And wow, really, really good. And then the other thing I did was made a gluten-free muffin and normally... I like to moisten my muffin with applesauce well I didn't have any applesauce another time I made muffins around Thanksgiving time with pumpkin puree instead of applesauce well what could I use this time I used prune butter and I made prune butter muffins and prune butter muffins are really great topped with prune butter All these recipes are available at ResponsibleEatingAndLiving.com and and they will be on my podcast post for this particular show. There will be links for all of these recipes. So I hope you enjoy them. The last thing I wanted to do, let's see how this goes. I thought I would end with a little song. Because of everything that's going on in the news today, I... um, I wanted to bring back a song that came out, gosh, I don't even know when this song was written, but what foresight. Johnny Mitchell wrote a song, Big Yellow Taxi, decades ago, and it really is so true today with everything going on with pesticides, herbicides, manufactured food, genetically modified food. I thought I would
0: end this show with a little of that. seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone they pay paradise and put up a parking lot hey farmer farmer put away that DDT now give me spots on my apples but leave me the birds and the bees Please, don't it always seem to go That you don't know what you've got till it's gone They'd pave paradise and put up a parking lot They'd pave paradise, put up a parking lot